The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. The FOMC is strongly committed to bringing inflation down to 2% over time and to keeping policy restrictive until we are confident that inflation is on a path to that objective. It would be premature to conclude with confidence that we have achieved a sufficiently restrictive stance or to speculate on when policy might ease. We are prepared to tighten policy further if it becomes appropriate to do so. The fighting has intensified in Gaza after the temporary ceasefire ended. That's right. The fragile pause lasted just seven days. Israel carried out airstrikes almost immediately, saying it hit around 200 targets. Israeli officials are accusing Hamas of violating the terms of the deal by firing rockets towards Israel territory. Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom throwing down in the epic red versus blue state debate. The two high-profile governors talking trash for months and finally getting the chance to hammer each other's record face-to-face. They tax too much. They regulate too much. They have a political agenda. It's not a good climate for business. They've lost a lot of companies. California dominates. Size of 21 state populations combined. It's the fifth largest economy in the world. This is an app where they plot the human feces that are found on the streets of San Francisco. And you see how almost the whole thing is covered because that is what has happened in one of the previous greatest cities this country's ever had. Human feces is now a fact of life, except when a communist dictator comes to town. Then they cleaned up the streets. They lined the streets with Chinese flags. They didn't put American flags there. They cleaned everything up. So they're willing to do it for a communist dictator, but they're not willing to do it for their own This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. First up is our market technician, Bruce Fraser, at Wyckoff Analytics to discuss a Santa Claus rotation rally. Bruce says we are finally seeing the market start to broaden out as investors take profits in the magnificent seven growth stocks and redeploy them into other sectors. He also talks about what's driving the big move in precious metals right now and discusses similarities between what we are seeing in the market currently and what happened during the 1970s period. This was something that we discussed in depth just a couple weeks ago on our Big Picture program. Next up is Dan Steffens at Energy Prospectus Group to give listeners an update on the energy space. We've just gone through one of the weakest seasonal periods of the year for oil, and Dan says there's some deep discounts in the energy sector right now. You'll definitely want to tune in to hear what he has to say when it comes to finding companies with good cash flow and high dividends. So with that said, we hope you enjoy today's show. Overall, the consumer is still healthy. They are still spending. They're doing quite well, but the direction is now changing. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. If you're seeking financial advice and how to invest in today's markets, Financial Sense Wealth Management can help. From setting up or providing advice on 401k plans, managing corporate cash balances, to helping individuals, foundations, and businesses achieve their financial goals, give Financial Sense Wealth Management a call today at 888-486-3939. Let us work together to help you get on the path to success. Financial Sense Wealth Management has been named as one of the top investment advisory firms in the U.S. by the Financial Times. Let us put our financial expertise to work for you. Call now at 888-486-3939 or email grow at financialsense.com. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. Well, it arrived just as it was expected. The Santa Claus rally is in full steam. Some of the bigger questions, will this rally continue to the end of the year and possibly into 2024? Well, let's find out. Joining us on the program is Bruce Frazier from Wyckoff Analytics. Bruce is also a contributor to stock charts. And, you know, Bruce, we were just talking briefly before we went on the air. One of the things that's characterizing this rally now that we haven't seen in previous rallies earlier in the year, it was really the Magnificent Seven, the big seven 
AI tech stocks that were driving the S&P. But recently, we're seeing a breakout with most of the S&P 500 sectors starting to break out with maybe the one exception energy right now. So what's your take here? What is that telling you? I do believe that the year-end effect and the quarter-end effect are exceptionally important. I talk about them often in power charting, which is free. People can go watch it at uh, Stock Charts on Stock Charts TV. But the year-end effect is really important because you tend to accentuate the trends into the ends of the quarters and the years. And so the bull market peak in the S&P 500 occurred right at the end of the year 2021. And then the NASDAQ 100 went down and almost reached its lowest point at the end of 22. And I believe this was the institutions doing window dressing, literally selling, throwing overboard these growth stocks, which were performing so badly in 2022. And they sold them at exactly the wrong time. And uh, so that really did set the low. It was a test of the uh, earlier low in the year. And the market has just gone up, up, up all through 2023. We all know about the Magnificent Seven and how well they've done. And I do believe that they're going to push up into the end of the year. But Jim, you said something really important earlier, and that is, is that the market is broadening out. And that, to me, is so important. Because a broadening out of the market, I think, is a demonstration of health in the stock market. And so I believe that could bode well for 2024. Yeah, I was just noticing, Bruce, you know, you take a look at everything from consumer discretionary, staples are starting to move, finance, healthcare, industrials, uh, we had materials. And what was really surprising is real estate has been the stellar performer here in the last couple of weeks. What's your take? What is that telling you? Well, we have uh, interest rates have been falling. I don't think they can fall too much from here, but I do think interest rates are range bound. And I think that's a, creating a relief rally in real estate. But also I'm very much relative strength type person in the markets. And I love the way that these groups that you just mentioned are starting to show relative outperformance. And I think that the Magnificent Seven are going to continue to go up into the end of the year, maybe even into early 24. And I'm not predicting they're going to go down, but I think that they could be a source of cash as these huge profits get taken and redistributed out into the sectors that you just described. And uh, that is part of the broadening out effect of the market. And that is, I think, extremely healthy. And here's just a crazy number that I looked up yesterday. And uh, I did these, you know, back of the envelope. But year to date, the NASDAQ 100, which is really the Magnificent Seven primarily, but growth stocks in general, up about 46%. The S&P 500, which is capitalization weighted, as is the NASDAQ 100, was up over 18%. But when you do the equal weighted S&P 500, which all 500 stocks have equal weight in the index and in the ETF, and the symbols RSP, up 5.5% for the year. So, I mean, that just gives you a sense for the disparity of returns that have taken place across these uh, different indexes. And so I believe that what's going to happen is, is that you're going to have sort of a democratization of the markets in an election year where you're going to start to see some of these profits get taken in the growth stocks and then redeploy. They're not going to they're going to sell them down as holdings, but they're not going to not own them anymore. They're going to continue to own them and maybe overweight them. But they're massively overweighted because of their huge growth and that those funds, those that source of funds is going to rotate into other areas of the market. So I think 2024 is going to be very much a rotation game in the stock market. I'm looking at a chart of GDX and we've seen gold almost approaching its previous highs. And you look at the GDX, it's almost like a perfect reverse head and shoulders and it's breaking out. What's your take on gold here? Uh, so fascinating that you point that out because I actually uh, do this very old school technique with point figure charts where I do horizontal point figure counting, which gives us upside price objectives. 
And the GDX, that head and shoulders that uh, you're looking at on a point and figure chart, counts up from this area, which is around 31. It counts up to uh, around 41. So pretty substantial move, swing trading move in GDX. And it's starting to break out above resistance, uh, which I think is very important. And then the other thing is there's a larger structure underneath it, and that counts up 40 to 45. So these two counts confirm each other, which we love when we see that happen. And then maybe at a later date, we can we could talk about this again, but I even have a larger count than that that counts even higher. But, you know, I always believe you have to like take it one step at a time. And uh, so I'm looking at this uh, 39 to 41 area and saying, well, let's see if we can get there, which also, by the way, is the high that was made back in April. So this is a natural place for the uh, GDX to go to. Now, we've seen gold break out. Silver is starting to move. What's your take on silver in comparison to gold? Well, similar analysis. Silver tends to have more volatility in it. And uh, so silver miners, now I'm talking about, but I've also done these counts on the metals themselves, but the miners have a count here. Now they're around $27, $28 and counts up to 35. And then if we widen that count out and uh, go back to September of last year, the much bigger structure counts up 53 to 54. Wow. Yeah. So there's really a lot of room. And part of the reason, Jim, that I think that we may be seeing this all of a sudden this coming to life of these miners and there's other areas of the materials marketplace that are acting well, too, is it's not just the, the gold and silver miners, but the recent weakness in the dollar. And I believe the dollar uh, weakened here because the interest rates, U.S. Treasury interest rates are starting to fall off and have been really kind of dramatic in their drop in, in yields. And I believe that that's tempered foreign investment demand for uh, U.S. Treasuries for the time being. And so money is not flowing into the U.S. to go into bonds anymore at those higher yields. As a matter of fact, that foreign money might be what is coming in might be flowing into stocks, but we are seeing more weakness in the dollar. Yeah, one of the things we're gratified to see is we own a lot of dividend aristocrats, you know, things like the drug stocks, we've had consumer staples, these high dividend stocks, and they were kind of languishing because they were competing against treasury yields. Now that treasury yields are coming down, these things are starting to fly. There you go. And uh, I love that theme. I think it's a very wise uh, theme. There's great value in that whole area. And also a sector that really has been appealing to me for a while now are the utilities are coming to life. The thing that just struck me is during this period of time, especially during we saw that correction prior to the drop in interest rates when you know even the Magnificent Seven were getting hit. But some of the yields on these consumer staples uh, were just, and even the drug stocks, we picked up a REIT with a 6% dividend a couple of weeks ago, and it's already up over 10%. And the thing is about these yields that in the instruments that you're uh, investing in is that those yields go up, the dividends go up. And so uh, this is a dynamic that these uh, treasuries don't have. And so uh, I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah, you, you got a lot of people that got, you know, with all the volatility and especially after what happened last year. But I want to come back to something on interest rates here because we've seen, you know, the 10-year go from almost 5.2 down to almost 4.2. And when you, when you take a look at uh, treasuries, when they're at that, people are thinking, oh, well, I'll just go into treasuries because of all the volatility. What they don't realize is treasuries don't go up. So when you look at the interest rate market, you say you don't think they may have much further to go on the downside. Let's spend a few moments there. Well, I do point figure analysis on interest rates. And interestingly, the yields went right up to these counts at the highs 
of the yields, which I showed those over time at power charting. People can go see those, but uh, see that see those studies. But then Treasury note yields, the 10 years started to really fall off after it hit those objectives. And I believe that they're range bound at best. And rates going down is not really good news. It's not good news for the economy if you look historically at the business cycle. And interest rate, I I think that they're range bound. They could be for, we could talk, be talking about this in a year, Jim, and rates could be in this same area. And it's historically not a terrible thing for stocks to have rates up and then holding at a level uh, and trading in that level. I mean, the market can go up in the face of that. But when rates start to go down after they've gone up as much as they have, that usually is a precursor to recession. And the economy is pretty close to stall speed now. Yeah. One of the things that as I look at these charts is, you know, a lot of people, we saw gold uh, and people forget this in 2018, I think it was 1175. And then it went all the way up to over 2000. And people forget when you have a launch like that, you know, it consolidates a little bit. But as I look at gold here, what has really struck me, despite five and a half percent interest rates, despite a rising dollar, is how well gold is held up with those two things. Right. And I mean, here it is. It's now firmly above 2000. And, you know, 2000 has been a very important resistance area for a while now. And if Gold can live up here above 2,000 uh, and stay here. I mean, it may have to just hang at these levels for a while. Uh, that, I think, is going to be a positive for gold and for the miners in the future. And another thing about gold is that gold, people think of it as being an inflation hedge, and certainly we have inflation, and it does serve in that role, that capacity but the other thing it is, is uh, it's a hedge against international conflict and uh, problems with various world currencies. And so uh, we certainly seem to have uh, those conditions taking, uh, you know, in different parts of the world and they're not getting better so far. And so gold may be reacting to uh, international uh, trouble or international issues that are popping up here and there. And so it becomes a natural place to, uh, you know, put some of your assets for many people. You know, the thing that really strikes me, and I, I think this is one reason, uh, as we've been talking about, gold has been doing well. You think of how we began this decade, Bruce. So we began with the pandemic, the shutdown, then the Ukraine war, and now you've got the Hamas war. I mean, these are just three years we've had these kind of events. Yeah, they seem to be happening faster and faster. And one of my, this kind of takes me to, to another topic. I like to look at analogs. And so the analog that I've really been spending a lot of time on is the 60s and the 70s. And uh, the 60s was a period of low inflation, low stable interest rates. And uh, the people will want to look this up that, but I actually remember it is the Nifty 50 era. And the Nifty 50 era was then uh, comparable, I think, to the Magnificent Seven and the growth stock era today. Because growth stocks love low stable inflation and low stable interest rates. And neither of those conditions exist anymore. And so I think that this ultimately plays uh, increases the risks for the growth stocks uh, eventually. But the other part of it is, is that it's amazing to me how much our markets today are mirroring the markets of the 60s into the 70s. And that was a period of ramping inflation. That's amazing. We just did an hour show about two weeks ago on the parallels of today's market, including the Nifty 50 to the Magnificent Seven to the late 60s and 70s. Bruce, we're speaking the same language here. Yeah. And, you know, when you line up, so I take the Dow Industrials uh, that we just, the, starting with the pandemic, and I line it up to the 1962 decline, which was related to um, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis and also to the uh, steel 
uh, companies raising prices and getting uh, JFK uh, riled up is they had a very important low and then just went on a moonshot. The stock market did the Dow Industrials. And that really, I looked at that and I said today, and I said, this looks like the 60s. And I went back and I've started to like compare them. And it's amazing to me how much we seem to be mirroring what happened in the stock market in the in the 1960s after a bear market in 66, which was comparable in uh, duration and extent to the bear market we had in 22, then had a, a really good two-stage rally, which is what we're having now. And it went right up to the highs and it hit those highs in November of 68 when Nixon was elected to his first term. It's amazing to me. And uh, so here we are. I think that we could have a stock market in 24 that can, it has the seasonality characteristics in the in election year to go up into the November election of next year and uh, into whoever, I'm not making prediction about who gets elected, but more about the idea that the stock market could go up into uh, election time 2024 and be very, very similar in what it did in 68. You know, the thing that reminds me, and when we did our show on the comparisons to the 60s and 70s, that was one thing that stood out to me was the Nifty 50. I remember that and the Magnificent Seven, because you're looking at some of these stocks, Bruce, and just from a fundamental point of view, you got Microsoft valued at almost $3 trillion. It's selling at 36 times earnings. You've got Apple at almost just shy of three trillion, almost three quarters of the GDP of Germany at 31. And then Amazon at one and a half trillion, selling at almost 70 times earnings. I mean, it, it reminds me of not only the nifty 50, because that was, you know, these were the stocks you had to own. And they did well until a, a serious bear market. And then things shifted as interest rates, inflation, and higher commodity prices took over for the balance of the decade. Now, you can go back and you can look, and I love this analog of the 70s. And of course, you know, I was a, a young professional in the 70s and remember the era well. The trading range that we were in lasted more than a decade, but the swings, the up and down swings were large and persistent. So bear markets that lasted a couple of years and were painful for people to go through, and then bull markets that would last a couple of years. And if you were able to trim off the losses in the down periods and just take advantage of the up moves, you could do well in the 70s, but it was not an era for buy and hold. It was not an era for indexing. And so that is really one of the big lessons or messages I would want to convey to people. If you had $100 in the early 60s, you bought a basket of goods for $100, that same basket of goods at the end of in 1981 was $340-some dollars. And we have to preserve purchasing power. And for retirees, we have to do it and be able to draw income for uh, uh, living expenses. that's a, Those are two big jobs to do in an era of gigantic trading ranges. And uh, so I think the, na the nature of the investing business is going to change dramatically in the next decade. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, you take a look at the last decade, it was disinflation, 0% interest rates. It was like, just put your money in an index fund. It was a no-brainer and you made money. I don't see anything like that happening going forward here. And I think indexing or index investors are going to have a rude awakening given all the turbulence. And as we started this out, Bruce, just taking a look at the, the beginning of this decade, we began with the pandemic, the shutdown, the war in Ukraine, now the, the Hamas war going on in Israel. So it's a very volatile period. This isn't going to be stable like we saw in the last decade. That's right. And then also the sheer amount of debt that's been put on the balance sheet in this country, that debt competes with the real economy. And the real economy is going to be affected 
by the need of the country to be able to service all the forms of debt that are at work. That doesn't mean the markets can't do it, but what we really need to do is free up our capitalistic free enterprise system to be able to generate the growth, to be able to service the debt and be able to reduce the debt over the course of the next couple of decades. And uh, that to me just doesn't seem to be happening right now. Yeah, I think we're going in the opposite direction. And that that is something, uh, in fact, that's one of the topics we're covering on the show this week in the big picture. We've added, Bruce, $4 trillion to the national debt this year. And we're going to cross, I think it was 92 days to go from 32 trillion to 33. We'll do the next trillion in less than 90 days. So it's almost becoming exponential at this point. And, you know, what's that old saying, a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon you're talking about a lot of money. Think about it, a trillion. I actually did the compounding interest exercise, gosh, 10 years ago on a trillion dollars and what the what the long-term costs are to have the system repay interest in principle of a trillion dollars and one trillion, not just four trillion. And it's it's a number that just defies the mind's ability to comprehend it. So in summing up, Bruce, the Santa Claus rally is well on its way. Some of the positives on that is the rally is starting to broaden out with the majority of the sectors taking off. And as we go into 2024, you think this would continue, but more of a rotation out of, let's say, the Magnificent Seven to those sectors that have been undervalued and underpriced. Uh, said perfectly. And then the only thing I would add there, Jim, is that I do think that the Fed did all of their heavy lifting on interest rates in 2023. And they would love to be able to get out of the way. Uh, There's even people that are suggesting that probabilities are that there could be a rate cut in uh, sometime in by mid-year in 24. I don't expect that. But the markets are starting to anticipate that possibility. And I think that the Fed will do what they can to not look political, to, but at the same time, liquefy the system as best they can in an election year to keep the economy pushing along. And uh, also, I think interest rates will remain relatively stable pretty much through the whole year. And the last thing we really want is to have interest rates falling because, and that sounds crazy, but- if interest rates are falling, it likely is because the economy has dipped into recession. And right now, we're just above recessionary, 1%, 2% growth. And if we can get that up even more, that would be better and just keep the economy limping along. And I think the Fed will try to do that through other backdoor means besides lowering rates. All right. Well, the the story is this looks like the Santa Claus rally can continue, but more rotation coming next year. So, Bruce, if our listeners like to follow you, you've got your own website and also you do things at Stock Charts. Tell our listeners about both. Well, uh, Wyckoff Analytics, a lot of great free content there, very oriented towards the Wyckoff methodology, which is this wonderful 100 plus year old methodology on how to read the tape is the way we say it, but it's really chart analysis. And then at Stock Charts, I do a show called Power Charting, and every Friday a new episode comes out. And this Friday, I talk specifically about the seasonality effects of 2023 and the likely effects in the election year of 2024. And 22 and 23, the way we do the seasonality, were really eerily good. And so if we get, a, if we get and this was uh, sort of, I guess, my uh, final thought about this is that if we can get the seasonality working in 24, January, February will tend to be flat because the strength in the stock market is likely all being pushed into the end of 23 because institutions are burning the last of their available cash to buy stocks. They're they're rushing into the market before calendar year 23 ends. 24 starts with a sideways market. And then starting in March, 
we have an uptrend that pretty much persists all the way into September. And that could be our great in trading and investing opportunity for the year if the seasonality works out the way it has. This goes back about 74 years of uh, data. All right. Well, Bruce, it looks like you and I are seeing things in the same way, especially with the analogs. In fact, as I mentioned, we did an extensive show a couple of weeks ago about this analogy, including the Nifty 50. Like minds think alike. All the best, happy holidays, and a safe new year to you. The flawed worldview of mainstream economics is a mechanical worldview. So in short, that worldview considers the economy to be a machine, the market an automaton, and the conscious humans in it to be robots. Cognitive economics offers a different paradigm, an alternative paradigm. The MMH is a so-called post-cognitivist interpretation of cognitive economics, but basically cognitive economics is a partnering of cognitive science and economics. And that tells you that cognitive science as a multidisciplinary field that studies all aspects of the mind that it can help us to formalize what investors have always casually referred to as the market's mind. So you switch from a mechanical worldview to an organic, cognitive worldview of economics. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsensewealth.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. One sector that has been lagging recently has been oil. The thesis is demand is slowing because the economy is slowing. Is that real? Or is this just a bunch of nonsense on Wall Street? Let's find out. Joining us on the program is Dan Steffens from Energy Prospectus. Dan, I can't remember when there's so much confusion in the energy markets. You have the IA saying that basically the demand for oil is going down because we're all going to be driving EVs and wind and solar is going to take over energy. And then you have OPEC going in the opposite direction and say, well, based on what we're seeing from our customers, demand is going up. So which story is right? Yeah. Well, you know, oil demand is seasonal and demand does go down a little, gets softens up in September and October. But then when you get to this time of year, especially when you look at the winter weather, we're having a real winter weather in the Northeast now. And so that's going to get a spike in uh, heating oil demand. And our distillate inventories are running about 15% below normal for this time of year. And that's diesel and home heating oil are in the group of distillates. And so we have really tight inventories of that. Gasoline inventories are a little bit below the five-year average, but gasoline should not be a problem. We have plenty of light crude oil for that. But I don't really see global demand going down. It may not go up as much as they thought like three or four months ago, but it would take a major, significant global recession for oil demand to go down. Yeah, because I'm looking at my Bloomberg chart. I've got crude oil stocks at Cushing. I've got diesel. All of them are well below their five-year average. Now, Cushing just ticked up in the last week or two, but it's still below the band up and down on the five-year average of these stocks. So everywhere I look, about the only thing that is close to is U.S. commercial crude stocks. That's about it. Everything else is below normal. Yeah below normal. And that's true throughout the entire OECD. Europe inventories are really low. And there looks like they're going to have a much colder winter this year than last year. So, you know, maybe they dodged the bullet last year with a mild winter, but if they have a really cold winter, they're going to eat through those space heating fuels pretty darn quick over in the Europe. And we'll see. And I already see natural gas prices in both Europe and Asia are like over $15 in MCF where we're trading at like below three. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, you know, that's interesting because you talk about the seasonal demand. And when we get into September and October, we call them the shoulder months. Uh, demand goes down because the summer driving season's over. People on the East Coast have their power boats out of the water. So we're using less demand. People aren't traveling as much until maybe uh, jet fuel around the holidays. But other than that, it's a two month window where demand softens, but then starts kicking up when the winter months kick in. So this has been routine every single year, but they act like when you get into the shoulder month, oh my God, demand is going down. Well, yeah, it does. It's seasonal. Yeah, it happens every year. And I'll remind everybody that supply actually goes down too. Winter weather impacts the field work, especially in the United States. When you get up into Canada, the Bakken, even into uh, you know the gas place in the Appalachia, they have freeze-offs. It's, it's harder to work. A lot of companies really pull back. When I was at Hess for 18 years, we all Always, you know, shut down our drilling program in North Dakota until we got, you know, back to May or something. So almost every year, U.S. production actually slides lower through March before it picks up again. So, you know, lower supply, you know, and higher demand for space heating fuel should solve this. And then I think by next summer, you know, it's going to pick up again. And I just don't see, I don't know about you on a recession. I just do not see a serious recession coming. You know, I don't either. I'm just looking at the amount of money the government is spending. And I think it's one reason we've been able to sail through this rate hike without the economy softening. We got two quarters of softening demand in the first part of last year, but that's it. And, you know, the government is spending almost, what, an extra, we'll have a deficit of $2 trillion. They're talking about almost a budget of $7 trillion of spending for 2024 being an election year. So I don't know. I just, every time you think you're going to see a recession and in as real estate, Dan, there is a shortage of houses because, I mean, if you're sitting on a 3% mortgage, why in the hell are you going to sell that home and go pay 7 or 8% in a mortgage? That's number one. And number two, if you have over a half a million dollars of capital gains on your home, you owe taxes to the government. So locked in mortgage rates at low are keeping people in their homes. So that's reducing supply and also the advent that you could pay heavy taxes if you sell your house. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. But, you know, this has to be the most advertised recession in the history of recessions. <laughs> They've been talking about it for like a year and a half. And, you know, my conspiracy theory is they want to keep pushing this because they know that fear of recession keeps a lid on gasoline prices. And the last thing the Democrats want is, you know, high gasoline prices next summer when they're trying to get reelected. So it's, yeah, who knows? Yeah, it's amazing because we've seen the price of oil pull back and, the stories coming out of Wall Street, recession, recession. We've seen the bond market come back. We were over 5% on both the two-year, the 10-year, and the 30-year. And all of a sudden now we're back to like, what, 4.2 on the 10-year. Um, so they pushed yields down and they pushed gasoline prices. And I think a lot of this is being manipulation because you've got the IEA telling people one story, that demand is going away, that EV we're all going to be driving EVs and we're going to be powered by wind and solar. You've got OPEC, which is saying just the opposite, demand for their product is going up. And then you've got you know people in the field and the oil companies. So I've never seen so many disparate stories about energy, I don't think in the probably the last year. It is for some people, it's confusing. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, the elephant in the room is, are we ever going to do anything about Iran? I mean, I saw a report the other day that our bases in the Middle East have, have been attacked over 70 times. And, you know, we have had injuries, but to act like, you know, the Biden administration is just, it seems like to me, they're going out of their way not to blame what happened in Israel on Iran, even though everybody with a brain knows that Hamas got their missiles and all their weapons and they're being directed by Iran. And so is Hezbollah. So are the terrorists down in Yemen that are, have launched multiple attacks on our bases and attacks directly uh, sent rockets uh, heading toward Israel. And I think they've you know attacked some ships too. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons they don't want to do anything is they want Iran to keep pumping oil oil versus the sanctions that were on them. Because if you put the sanctions back on, that's going to reduce demand or supply of oil by another million or two barrels a day. Yeah. I think if they announced they were going to enforce the sanctions against, just enforce the ones we already have, basically, enforce against Iran, I think you would see oil spike 
maybe to a hundred, like very quickly. Cause if that takes a million and a half, two million barrels a day off the market, you're really tightening it up then. You would need the other OPEC nations to produce almost at max capacity to replace that. So when you look at this, even where we're at right now, today, you and I are doing this interview on a Wednesday. The price of WTI is a little over $77. It's up almost a buck today and Brent's over 82. At these levels, companies are making a lot of money. The cash flow, you know, this is the one sector of the market that not only has, they're selling at low multiples, they're producing prodigious amounts of cash flow. They're increasing their dividends. I mean, you know, we've saw Chevron and Exxon buy make two major purchases. In fact, Chevron made a couple and they're talking about next year increasing their dividend 8%. So these companies are producing a lot of cash flow and unlike the past, they're passing it on to investors. Yeah. What I was telling you before we started this, that you know, I had a meeting yesterday in Houston, 10 people in the room that really know a lot about the gas industry. And one of the topics that came up was that Saudi Arabia really does need $90 oil to fund their goals. You know, they want to diversify by their economy and that they need to get more, you know, continue revenues to support all their social programs. And they want Brent at 90 and they can do it. I mean, if they want to, but they don't want to be the only ones that are cutting back on production. But I just don't think they have that much more. I don't think many of the other countries are really cutting back at all. I think they're probably all producing as much as they can, pretty much. Well, every single year we see the IA has to go back and revise their estimates made at the beginning of the year because they're always downplaying demand for oil. And this nonsense, by the end of the decade, we're not going to need oil. I just don't see that happening. If you look what's going on in the news, Dan, dealers are sitting on huge inventories of EVs. They're just sitting on the lot. Some of the dealers are refusing to take new orders. You just had one state, I forget which state, is revoking their mandate for EVs. So this isn't going well. And then you have the government warning that because of what we're doing to the grid, you're going to have more, let's say, blackouts this winter. Yeah. And the solution to that is we really need to build more gas-fired power plants. You know, in Texas, we're constantly being warned during the summer, you know, turn your thermostat up to 75 or something so that your air conditioning doesn't kick on in the afternoon. You know, all they really have to do is put, you know, a couple more gas-fired power plants around Houston and Dallas and maybe one more around some of the other big cities and they solved that problem. But, you know, we're into wind over here. I tell you, they're still putting more windmills up, but they're unreliable and it's just not going to work. And I've heard that the funding for a lot of these big wind and solar projects is being pulled because the cost of capital has uh, just destroyed the economics on those projects. Well, you got a lot of, and it's not just that the economics are changing because they were saying the cost of green was coming down and that was for two reasons. Cheap oil, which we had most last decade in cheap financing because we were at 0% interest rates. All that's changed right now. Financing is more expensive. Oil is more expensive. And a lot of these wind companies are pulling out of projects. But Dan, the other issue, and Robert Bryce, who we've had on the show, has covered this extensively. I think there's like three or 400 communities that have turned away solar farms and windmills in their neighborhood. Nobody wants to look at a windmill. Yeah. And the real solution to the electricity issue is nuclear, obviously. But who wants to, you know, get funding for a project that's going to take multiple years to get online and then you know, have no idea what the administration of the future is going to do about nuclear. And that's one thing we talked about the, on this Washington inter- interview I was on was that the thing you don't see more senators proposing nuclear projects is because they all know that their constituents don't want a power plant, nuclear power plant anywhere close to their home. Well, it's amazing. The U.S., I think 1992 was the peak of nuclear power plants. We had our 112. We're down to 92 and we're still retiring more plants. Meanwhile, China is going to build like, I think, 24 new plants, nuclear power plants. They have over 50. They're building coal-fired plants. Germany is restarting their coal-fired plants to get them through the winter because they have trouble getting natural gas with the war in the Ukraine. All of this, I've never seen the convulsions that we're seeing in the energy markets today, whether it's electricity, how we power the grid, what kind of cars we drive, estimates on demand. There's just so much confusion out there. What do investors do? Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) I will tell you that I follow like 40 companies, primarily upstream oil and gas, some midstream. And the ones that are trading the deepest discount to my valuations are companies that don't pay any dividends. They're growing 
you know, they're reinvesting and they're growing their production and proven reserves like crazy. And I love that kind of growth. But man, this market wants dividends and they want stock buybacks, you know, that kind of thing. And so the ones that have those programs in place, they're the ones that are drawing the attention. I guess just the fact that a company pays dividends tells the Wall Street gang that they're financially secure if they can pay dividends. And But they've done a wonderful job. I mean, this cycle, you know, normally when you had oil spike into $90 for a while over the summer, you would see these companies ramp up their drilling programs, but they're showing a lot more discipline. I looked at the active rig count, the last report on the active rig count, the rigs drone for oil is down 127 rigs to 500. The rigs drone for gas are down 38 year over year to 114. So we got a lot less drilling activity. And at this level, it seems very unlikely to me that you're going to continue to see U.S. oil production continue to increase. We pretty much you know, completed all the good duck wells that were in inventory. But they're, I mean, they, they're high grading, they're drawing, focusing on the real tier one acreage that helps. But eventually, you know, you run out of tier one acreage in all these plays. You know what? The amazing thing that people don't see is if you take a look at oil, the oil stocks themselves, everything from Chevron to Exxon selling at 10 times earnings, nine times earnings in a market that is selling at close to 19 times earnings. You've got dividend yields that are anywhere from from 5% to as high as 6 and 7% in a market that is paying hardly anything when it comes to dividends. Yeah. Our, our high-yield income portfolio, I've got 12 companies in there. The average yield is 7.9. And I'm looking at the screen right now. Four of them have dividend yields over 10%. And you know, some people, they see a high dividend yield like that and they oh, that's a really risky company or something. Or some risk. No, these companies are all have super strong balance sheets. <laughs> They're just generating a whole bunch of free cash flow at these prices so they can pay out high dividends. Yeah, I'm looking at a balance sheet for Chevron. Free cash flow is going to be close to over 26 billion next year. I know the numbers are almost like this monopoly money or something. They're just so big. Billions, you know. You used to think million was a big number. Now it's billions. <laughs> Dan, you know, when you take a look at the cash flow that these companies are putting out, and even you look at where oil is today, it $80 oil, these companies are making a lot of money. I mean, Exxon next year will have free cash flow of $36 billion. I mean, these are enormous. Yeah. And that's why they were willing to pay almost $60 billion for Pioneer because they believe that oil prices are going to stay high and they know they know what the situation is. What is the talk that you're hearing in Houston? Because for the longest time, the big majors were ignoring shale oil, particularly the Permian and some of the bigger shale plays. They were going offshore, a lot of drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, Ghana, and other places. Now what we've seen in the last couple of years, the big companies are drilling for oil on Wall Street, whether it's Exxon buying Pioneer or let's say Chevron buying Hess, they're buying these companies. And at the same time, they're also coming back onshore. So they're getting into shale plays. Chevron bought a shale play in Colorado. They just bought one in the Permian. So what's the story that you're hearing? It looks like the oil companies are coming back on land. Yeah. I mean, they see the potential that's still out there in the Permian. And it's a technology play, kind of the horizontal legs of these wells. They're able to keep them in the better parts of the zone. You know, the technology improvement is incredible. There's hardly any dry holes. I mean, the good thing about the shale plays is that they're extremely well-defined. You don't really even have to like go shoot a bunch of expensive 3D seismic or anything because, you know, those zones have been penetrated by, you know, millions of vertical wells. So they know where they are. They know the thickness and they know, you know, what's down there. So I think one of the biggest miss was when they said, oh, these shale plays, these wells deplete fast and decline fast. And they do. But at $70 oil, you know, I'm seeing payouts in the six to eight months range. I looked at what was it? One of the oh, uh, surge energy up in Canada, and they're reporting that there's an area they're drilling in where the wells are paying out in 10 weeks. In 10 weeks. It's insane. And yeah, they come on fast to the decline, but they're not going to zero. I mean, you know, after a year, there may be a third of what they come on at, but they were already paid out three times. I'd be drilling those things like crazy. You have internal rates of return over 100%. Yeah, I looked at Baytex is, is one I just recently added coverage on. And every one of their like eight top plays has internal rates of return over 100%. That means the wells are all paying out in a year, in less than a year. It's insane. It's really, I've never seen this kind of quality out there. 
And like you said, so Exxon, Chevron, they got deep pockets. They can go gobble up these companies and add those reserves to their balance sheet then. Well, it's amazing. And I just don't see this lasting forever. And I just don't buy the story that, you know, by the end of this decade, we're all going to be driving EVs powered by windmills and solar panels. I just, it's coming apart. And you're already seeing the Wall Street Journal has been running a number of stories with the automobile companies. You know, the EVs are starting to stack up on the lot. They're not moving. They're not selling because People just aren't willing to pay twenty, thirty thousand dollars more for an EV, and EVs don't work very well in cold weather. I'm surprised we haven't done kind of the direction where Toyota is going, which is more hybrids. I agree with you 100% on that. We should be doing hybrids. Yeah, we should be doing hybrids as a transition vehicle and eventually EVs, but it's not buying. Well, listen, Dan, as we close, I just look at the energy sector and I just see opportunity out there. Where else can you buy companies in this kind of market at eight, nine, 10 times earnings and get dividend yields anywhere from four to 8%? Yeah. I can't see any place else that you can. And I think these companies are really, really attractive. They've cleaned up their balance sheets and I don't see any that are on the ropes and they don't have any near-term. The ones I follow don't have any near-term debt problems at all. All right. Well, listen, Dan, as we close, why don't you tell our listeners about your website and your newsletter? Okay. We're at just energyperspectus.com. And newsletter is just one of the things we do. We've also published uh, detailed quarterly reports on all the companies that are in our model portfolios. We don't, you know, handle anybody's money, or we're not we're not uh, an investment advisor or anything, other than the fact that we do the due diligence on these companies and issue independent research on them, and that's what they're after. It's normally three hundred fifty dollars a year to be a subscriber to our service. But if you send an email to Sabrina, it goes to energyperspectus at gmail.com. That's energyperspectus, one word, at gmail.com. And she'll give you a discount code to get $100 off the first year so you can test us out. But boy, I tell you, we're looking at some really high quality companies trading at deep discounts. Well, super. Well, listen, Dan, thanks for coming on the program. I want to wish you a happy holidays and a prosperous new year. Hey, thank you very much. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888-486-3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk